Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. We're off this week reporting on some fantastic news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from the past year in this Rewind episode. The first will be an interview with author Robin McLean, whose recent book, Get Em Young, Treat Em Tough, Tell Em Nothing, has had its praises sung by many book reviewers. She talks to me about being a Westerner and writing about the West. We wrap up the show with a very fun piece from reporter Savannah Strott, who followed around a group of showgirls for a day in Las Vegas, and we learn more about this symbol of Vegas. Let's get into it. Alrighty, well, I am here with author Robin McLean, who lives here in Nevada, and you're a writer of books such as Pity the Beast, Reptile House, and most recently, Get Em Young, Treat Em Tough, Tell Em Nothing. Uh, so Robin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get on the Nevada airwaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Nevada airwaves love talking about books. We're huge book readers here at the Nevada Independent. And so we're, we're excited to talk about this book and then also kind of about Nevada in general a little bit more. The reason I'm talking to you is actually I saw you during a panel during the literary crawl here in Reno where you talked about kind of what it means to be a Westerner. And I, I really loved what you had to say. And so to start off, I actually just wanted to ask a little bit about you and how you ended up here in Nevada. Well, I grew up in the Midwest. Then I went to school on the East Coast. And then I went to law school in the Midwest and then wanted to get the hell out of there to probably the farthest place I could go without changing language or currency, which was Alaska. <laughs> And I realized that I love the West. And as a Midwesterner who had been on the East Coast, you really feel the differences between these regional vibes. And Alaska was sort of a frontier place. And I ended up in Nevada when I was on a book tour for my first book, Reptile House, where I was camping with my niece and nephew. And I told them that they had to navigate from Denver to San Francisco without using any big highways. And I showed them this thing called an atlas with a bunch of paper. And we ended up on Highway 50 and a friend of theirs lived off of Highway 50, which everybody in Nevada knows is the loneliest road in America. And I fell in love with that place. It was the first place that I had been since Alaska that blew my mind in the same way Alaska did. And I've been there since. You're kind of in an interesting part in Nevada, right? You're not in a main city. Oh, no, I'm in the Monitor Valley. So if you put your finger on the middle of the state, basically the geographic center of the state, the very, very northern edge of Nye County, I get my mail in Eureka, I get my hair cut in Reno, I go to the bookstore in Reno or Las Vegas. It's very, very beautiful out there. A lot of people have been to Diana's Punch Bowl, which is an extinct geyser left over from the Yellowstone formation. And I can see it from the porch out there. And I've been running a little writer's retreat. That's awesome. So you are just a house in the desert. <laughs> yeah, it's a destination. The house is sort of incidental to everything else. And there's this beautiful canyon that I get to walk up all the time and interesting folk, as you know, and ancient spaces. The Tokima Cave, which is a very, very well-known pictograph site, and archaeologists have been studying the human human habitations there at Alta Zakima on Mount Jefferson and and people come there to hunt and recreate and look at the stars and it's just the best place in the whole world in my opinion. Well, I I, I love rural Nevada. I, I have a very strong connection to it. I, I worked on the 
travel show wild nevada for pbs for a while and so i've experienced a lot of it and i think that it's, it's awesome that we're getting writers that are living out there because i think that it hopefully it inspires some of your writing and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit and i wanted to know you know part of what you talked about during your panel for the uh, literary crawl here in reno was what it means to be a westerner and i wanted to ask you a little bit of a different version of that question which is what does it mean to be a nevadan specifically to you it's interesting to talk to people who are coming into these places because it's sort of like being an alien landing on another planet. You you observe in a different way. And for me, I think Nevada is very interesting because it's got this mixture of, of really distinctive cultures. So you've got the sort of Western story, the Western myth, the cowboy, the cowgirl, the rodeo, the cattle ranching, the hunting culture. And, and all of the stories and the beliefs about self that come with that. But you also have California right over there, this very, very contemporary current culture with high tech. And then you've got this very crazy gambling culture that I had never encountered before of entertainment and the fantasies and dreams that come with getting rich. I mean, it's all or comes around these sort of dreams the dream of the Western hero, the dream of making some kind of step into the future, which is what computer culture is, I guess. And then this dream of great wealth. And then you have this sort of vast landscape that's so unpopulated by humans. And for me, overwhelmingly powerful and beautiful natural world, that, that's a very interesting set of conditions. You know, Alaska had some aspects of that, but not others. And it makes for super interesting culture, I think, where you might talk to people about art, or you might talk to people about a roundup, or, you know, you've got this whole issue of the wild horses and public land. It's, it's just, to me, a state that I think people maybe associate with one or other, but it's really a mix of all those things. And I find it really interesting. Does this state, does this inspire your writing, especially in your new book? It's definitely a very fertile place for a writer like me, because I know what I'm interested in is I'm interested in the United States of America. I'm interested in North America or the American mindset. This collection that has just come out, Getting Young, Treat Him Tough, Tell Him Nothing, is really about me exploring what is it to be an American or the American dream and sort of the good and the bad, because I'm interested in gorgeous aspirational aspects of being an American, but also the, you know, the pull up by bootstraps, but there's a, there's another side to that, the get it by all means necessary methodology that doesn't always work out for us as people or for the planet or for other beings besides humans. And so the way I write or the why I write is me working out these questions in my mind, a deep love of America and definitely a critique that I struggle with inside me. So to be in a place like Nevada where those things are clashing fundamentally, just that is how the state works. It's perfect in a way. I don't think when I moved here, I thought that's why I'm moving here. But I think you gravitate toward places or people or landscapes or other beings that are somehow helpful to you in, in living your life. So if you can, which I have been able to. I think that's like a beautiful way to, to look at it. And I wanted to read a quote from the New York Times review of your book, which again is get them young, treat them tough, tell them nothing. And the, the quote that I loved from the New York Times review is it's grotesque, 
morally unsettling and entertaining all at once. <laughs> Do you think that that's a good uh, description of your book? <laughs> yeah, that's. I was very thrilled by that. I think that's what I'm trying to do because because that's how I experience life or where I am attracted and repelled by the same thing. And I, I want my writing to be sort of morally inquisitive and intellectually interesting and also entertaining to me. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm amused by what I'm writing in a twisted or complicated way, then maybe somebody <laughs> else will too. And that's the miracle of writing and reading is that you have this meeting of the minds with a stranger. I, I love that comment. <laughs> well, I, I think it's very telling when when grotesque is used in a, in a positive way, I would say. <laughs> so one of your other books, Pity the Beast, it, it really focuses on the West. And I, I think it's been described as a feminist look at, at the Western culture in some ways. Why focus your writing, you know, out here? I didn't plan it. You know, a lot of people believe that writers plan everything out. But I really believe that the unconscious sort of runs what I do. And I had written a short story about this emergency that happened with the horse at the farm next door. And so I noticed that I had written a story where there's horses and farms and rural people. Then I found, oh, I'm writing a Western. And so it wasn't that I planned it out. I've written, you know, space stories or city stories. And, and that story happened to mosey on into the West. However, I am very, very interested in the American psyche. And I believe that the American psyche sort of runs on the Western myth. So it, it made sense in some ways that that's where I ended up writing a very, very, very long story. It's, it's a way to explore these underpinnings of the way Americans think. And, and also by extension, many, many other people in the world, because American thinking goes much farther than the American geographic borders. So so how are you connecting the greater American dream and myth, right, that you kind of talked about in your newest book with the West, which you've talked about in your previous books and kind of where you live now? I think of all stories as thoughts. I think mm -hmm. a book as a thought, a story as a thought. And whatever a writer is thinking about, those thoughts are going to filter through. So in the new collection, I'll ha I have a story that's set in Las Vegas. It's also set in the desert south of Las Vegas. And it's about greed, basically, or it's about victimhood or selfishness or getting what you need to survive. I think for me as an American, as a proud American, I think about how much greed... <laughs> is good and how much greed is bad. I mean, in some ways you think of the system where gambling or capitalism or people are sort of judged by how much money they have. Where does that come from? And I feel like it comes from this idea that if you have a lot, that you deserve it more than somebody else um, rather than luck. In the, the novel, of course, there's misogyny. This, the book is very much about misogyny and patriarchy that's invisible if you choose not to see it. And these massive power dynamics that ex exist in the system that runs on the idea that I earned it myself. So if you struggle with this principle that I'm going to earn everything I have on my own, but there are certain people in the culture that actually don't have as much power. That's very, very interesting and fertile material. And I think my interest is writing about that kind of thing. 
How is Nevada the West and how isn't Nevada the West? I have really strong bias. Like I think that that Nevada is the most Western place that I can think of because it's at least where I live, it's not a bunch of tourists running around or something like that. The people who live there, it's people who love the land, who have been there for six generations. I'm not one of them. People come together and help each other. <laughs> Even strangers coming through are treated really, really well. And that's that's the good side. And I, I really, really admire that about where I live and how it is in the West. I mean, in some ways, I think, how long will the West exist in this nation that we live in? This idea of honoring the land, which is very, very central to this idea of the West, existing in the land. And that's, of course, shrinking. We have this issue of water. How long will we have a West at all? Do you think that people then have the right view of Nevada, of the West? Or do you think that with your writing, you're trying to reshape that perception? There's no doubt that I'm trying to reshape perception. You're not sitting down saying, I'm writing this to reshape perception, but I'm definitely making trouble with my work. My stuff rattles people, it rattles me. So you don't do that unless you want to shift things around. And I think of art and writing as so important to the world. And so I take it really, really seriously. And if somebody engages with my writing, that is such an honor to me that that somebody would engage with my work. And I want to have an exchange with them that is meaningful. And also the, the thing about uh, the American dream is it's important at this time in history, I think, to identify what is real and what is not real. I have a lot of concerns about the world, about the planet, about democracy, about the future, about what is going to happen. And this is my way of contributing to that conversation. This conversation moving forward, where would you like to see that conversation go in the future? Are, are, are you like, what are your biggest concerns? I, I want lots of things. And I think what I, what I see, because I've been traveling around with this book stuff, is that everyone wants something very good for our country and our world. One of the things that's been very difficult and very beautiful about where I've lived is that I don't really align politically with a lot of my friends or neighbors, but we align as people very, very well. And I admire them and they admire me. I actually think that that's one of the most beautiful things about Americans is that when we come together individually, we can appreciate and admire and actually listen to each other. And what I worry about a lot is that sort of in this collective and the noisy, distant world where people aren't actually close together talking is that we just trash each other. I think the America that I love very much is one that can argue and can debate and can disagree respectfully, but we, we desperately need to be able to listen to each other. And so that's what I hope will happen for the future because I don't know anyone who's not worried about America right now. I don't know anyone who's not worried about the future for their kids or for the planet. And so I hope that the methodology of communication will shift towards turning off the noise and speaking more directly to each other and more respectfully to each other. Well, Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.
Alrighty, well, I am here with Savannah Strott. You are a freelance reporter down in Las Vegas, and you've recently written a story for us on Showgirls on the Strip, and it was it was really fun. So, Savannah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Joey, for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. And so to start off, I kind of just wanted to ask, you know, why did you want to write this story and what's it about? Honestly, I wanted to write the story because I, I finally had people start visiting me from college because I graduated a couple of years ago, a year ago. And I was finally doing touristy things. And I saw, obviously, the showgirls. They were out working. And I was just, like, fascinated by them because I, I never see them in action. I don't go to the strip very often, like most locals. And I, w- I just had all these questions about, like, what do they do? How do they make money? How is this a living? Do they like it? Don't they get, you know, harassed? Like, just so many questions. So that's kind of the curiosity that led me to the story. So they always explain, they always explain up front that they do it for a tip. He is pretending to slap her butt, but he's not touching her. Um, he did say he was looking to go uh, to, like, bite her breast or something in the air. Um and so the story ends up answering a lot of those kind of basic questions, but it really focuses on how these women see themselves as business women. They see themselves as entrepreneurs. They're, you know, hustlers. They're working very hard and not everybody thinks that of them. Some people know that they pose for tips and they will pay them, but they probably don't know kind of all the background work that goes into it and all of the skills that it takes to for somebody to give you a tip, first of all, but also give you kind of crazy high tip. Really? Um, yesterday, I got my biggest tip ever. Really? What? what do you, are you comfortable sharing? What yeah, is it? $540. $540? <laughs> so just for those who, and I'd be shocked if anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know what a showgirl is, but you know, maybe we actually do have some listeners outside of Nevada. So just for those listeners, what is a showgirl? So a showgirl is something, it's originally from Paris, actually, like way back in the 1800s. And they were women <laughs> dressed very nicely. In the 1950s, Vegas brought that kind of idea in the showgirl to the strip. And they were supposed to kind of bring elegance and sophistication. And these women were tall and beautiful and draped in like thousands and thousands of dollars of crystals. And traditionally, they were dancers that performed on these stages for customers. And then when they were done dancing, they were out on the casino floor, kind of keeping people interested away from their money, (laughs) kind of throwing it away, continuing to gamble. And so that's where it is in Vegas. But those traditional showgirls aren't so much kind of alive and acting anymore in that way. The last show fit that kind of traditional role that was solely dedicated to showgirls was Jubilee, and it ended in 2016. And so what are they doing now? Like, what's kind of the the modern interpretation of a showgirl? Yeah, so the modern showgirl, or at least the one that we see the most often, are women on the street, and specifically the Strip in Fremont. And they are dressed like showgirls. They don't have to meet the height requirement. You had to be like 5'8 back then. But now, no height requirement. Um, You (laughs) have to be good at this job. Basically, getting tourists mostly to pose for photos with you and then pay you for a tip. So a lot of other places will have Elmo's or like Batman superheroes. And we have that in Vegas too, but the showgirls are a Vegas icon. So it's kind of a specialty that you find here. And I do cosplay. I'm Harley Quinn on the strip too. Oh, wow. So this is, so you like, what's like the right term? Like I'm like impersonators, street performers. Yeah, I mean, showgirls. And then when I'm Harley Quinn, we just call each other like street performers, I Uh guess. (laughs) So you're doing this like full time? This is your 
Yeah, eight hours a day. Eight hours a day? Seven days this week. <laughs> Seven days? How often do you get, um, like, a day off? Whatever I want. I mean, like, Monday and Tuesday, I'm going to Disneyland. Oh, that's fun. I get my wisdom teeth taken out soon, so I'm working a lot because I know I have to take days off for that. Yeah. And I travel a lot. So like, yeah. So you just, like, pick your own schedule, then. And you followed around one specific company, right? Who, who were you following when you were doing this story? Yeah, I was following Picture Perfect Showgirls. And they are run by a woman named Michelle Elhai. And she describes herself, but also her company as like a high earning company. And basically, sometimes it's hard because it is a, a job that's kind of hit or miss sometimes on how much you get paid. But she sees herself and, you know, her company is high earners making more than you know, the average street performer or other, like even more than the average specifically showgirls. And so she herself makes a thousand dollars on average for a four hour shift, which is a lot lot for most people. But even on the strip, that's as a street performer from the context I got and talking to people, that's still a lot. So what she does is she's kind of changing the industry or she's doing different tactics within the industry where she's following on quality of showgirls instead of quantity. A lot of the showgirls that the other companies are more focused in getting, you know, the most showgirls out there. They have a high turnover rate because it is a hard job. But she is really focused on getting the best, recruiting, and being very selective in the people that she brings to the company with her. It does come down to skill and problem solving and analysis. And so she teaches all of the girls who work with her at her company. Oh, I love it. Good. I love it because I have no shame about what I do. Yeah. Um, I'm really proud of what I do and I know where it's gotten me in life. And mm-hmm. I'm also like a lot of girls like are nervous about being transparent. Uh-huh. When they get photos. Uh-huh. Like, but like, we're gonna hustle the shit out of you. We're getting a photo, you're gonna have a good time, and you're gonna give us a lot of money. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care. I'll be upfront about it. Like, it's just a tip. I'm going to hustle you, but it's just a tip. It's up to you. Like, I tell mm-hmm. people that. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Like, I'm not hiding anything. So Yeah. <laughs> so you talked to a bunch of these showgirls and including Michelle, right? Yes. I shadowed them for a day on Veterans Day. It was interesting. <laughs> a lot of people there, so. We started the day 8.30 a.m. at her house and just a bunch of, I think it ended up being maybe between 10 and 15 girls kind of in and out of the house, getting ready, doing their makeup, getting their costumes. And that's okay with you. I'm so used to the strip, but a lot of the girls like free mom and I'm like... Really? And it's like, I don't know, I feel cramped there a little bit. Maybe because I'm not used to it, maybe. Yeah, what's the, like, be- like for you personally, what's the benefit, like, strip versus free mom? Like, on the strip, like, there's more people and there's more space on the strip. And then they split off in pairs and they go off and do their shifts. So I followed Michelle and then her partner, Jamie Poole, who's also a showgirl who's been doing it for five years. So that was a pretty long time compared to some of the other girls who had only been doing it for couple months or a year and so I went and I followed them on their shift that was about four hours four and a half hours going up and down Fremont and doing a lot of walking and talking to a lot of other showgirls because there are some who don't work with a company and they're called independent showgirls and so getting their perspective as well but it was a it was a long day I personally was very tired after that so I see how it's very how it's difficult I wasn't even working trying to get people to pay me So part of the job is the costume, right? And and they have tons of different types of costumes, but they're all very they're scantily clad usually, and, and they're very big and showy. Yes. And part of that is because the bigger 
your feathers are, the more easy you are to spot, especially in somewhere like the strip where people kind of have a destination. So they're walking pretty fast and they're maybe not trying to talk to you, but they can't avoid you if you have these like huge feathers that kind of make you stick out. Like the actual quality costumes makes uh -huh. such a big difference, at least for me yeah. personally, like why I chose to stop doing independent. Yeah. Like even the difference in tips? Yeah, quality. yeah, for sure. Like people, like the difference in like the amount of photos that we got, like so much less than this, and the amount of tips because people want a tip for like quality. Like so, you were saying that Michelle generally makes about a thousand dollars on a four-hour shift, but is that like is that typical? You know, what what does the average photo come in? You know, what do they expect to get tipped? It's really difficult to give an average like per photo, especially mm -hmm. because a lot of their shifts end up being like the extreme generosity of one or two, you know, less frequent high tippers. So like on the day I went and I chatted with them, they got the $200 tip at one point, they got $170. I think they got 100. But then they also had a $70 tip, a $40 tip, a $20 tip, they had somebody give them $8. They had somebody give them no money at all. So it's harder to do it on like a per photo basis, but Michelle personally, she kind of finds anything under $20 when she says like a generous tip. Anything under $20 is a little offensive because they do have to split. So the tip is split between the two girls, about $10 per photo. So that's, I think for her, that's the minimum, but I think it really just depends showgirl to showgirl. Some people think that we're genuinely paid by by like, like casino, casino or something to just like walk around and be like a tourist attraction. And, and some people think that we're prostitutes too, mm. which is very interesting because that's a big target on our back to be like, you guys want to sleep with us? Like we would get arrested real quick if that was what we were doing. So yeah. they don't understand we're just out there to just literally take pictures with them and it's for tips and stuff and then that's it. And you know, obviously being out in public, you face the public and, and I think women in particular are generally victims of, of sexual harassment or, or, or the ire of, of, of drunken people walking down the strip. What do they face on a day-to-day -day basis when they're, when they're out working? Well, on a day-to-day -day basis, they definitely get comments of all kinds. But for the girls who've been working there for a while, there's only a certain category of comments that now kind of phase them. I think they said at least once a shift, the day I was shadowing with them, Michelle told me she heard four to five times somebody said, get a real job, which to the showgirls is extremely annoying because they see their work obviously as a real job and they think like they work very hard at it. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of experience. And that's not always recognized. But unfortunately, there are definitely some comments that are more targeted and do follow into, fall into the category of being sexually harassed or even being touched without their consent. They get slut, whore, don't look at her, like, stay away. For them, it does come down to you are a woman. You are unfortunately at risk to be sexually harassed in kind of any environment and then any job. You can be sexually harassed. But a lot of the way that the girls look at it is at this job, they're their own bosses. And so they do get to choose how they respond. If they walk away or if they, you know, want to say something back or if they want to tell security, which doesn't always help them. 
I worked at a law office when I was 18 and I had men come in and like make me feel like uncomfortable because they're being like weirdly like sexual harassment vibes, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and I was wearing like business casual clothes and like I'm sure if you ask any of these women here, no matter what they're wearing, there's been some form of like sexual harassment in our lives. So it is amplified when we're literally out there with a huge target on our back just being like, look at us, look at these rainbows, look at these feathers, like they're gonna look, people are gonna look. But we get to control that narrative. Like if someone touches us, we don't have to be like, hey, like thank you. Like we can be like, don't touch me. Mm. Like we have pepper spray, we have tasers. So it's kind of just they get the control and, you know, with the consent to like they get to they get to say where the limit is. All right, Savannah. Well, thank you so much for reporting on this story. If you want to read it, you can find it on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. And I'm sure we will see more freelance pieces from you in the future. So, Savannah, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. The show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at theenvyindie.com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>